I sat and watched Joe Cocker set in the brilliant sunshine, and then we were due to go on next, but Country Joe and the Fish, they said they'd never follow us. They played at Fillmore East with us <laughs> as headliners and said they couldn't follow us, and Joe said he would never do that again. I think the people in the bar had recognised us, and somebody got up and put the single on, but they put the B-side on, so it played at, uh, at 45, so it was, tw was twice as fast as it should be. But um, the bizarre thing was they got up and danced to it, <laughs> and when it had finished, they applauded us. It was bizarre. So uh, we finished our drinks and left. <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 29 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate twice-weekly classic rock podcast that proudly claims that my music is better than yours. I'm Paul Stevenson. Thanks, as always, for hitting play. Now, very quick mention before we start. I have a pair of weekend tickets plus camping to give away to a lucky listener for the brilliant Stone Dead Festival 2021. Black Star Riders, Gun, Blaze Bailey from Iron Maiden, Terrorvision, loads of great acts all performing live. Now, to win, just go to my website, vintagerockpod.com, click on the Win Stone Dead Tickets link at the top, Answer the ridiculously easy question, it really is, to get your name in the draw for those tickets. Live music is coming back. You can win a pair of those tickets now. Right, back to matters at hand. On last week's show, we had a Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, Doug Cosmo Clifford from Credence Clearwater Revival. If you've not listened yet, definitely check it out. It's a great interview. Now, they famously played Woodstock, but they weren't featured in the film or in the initial album because John Fogerty wasn't happy with their performance. But one band that was featured on those, though, which helped to shoot them to fame in America was British blues rock group 10 Years After. Now their epic, blistering and now legendary version of I'm Going Home earned them fans all over the world. Alvin Lee's incredible vocals, viciously quick guitar work matched with the thunderous rhythm section of Leo Lyons on bass and Rick Lee on the drums makes it an obvious standout. Now, the band had some big hits both sides of the Atlantic and they released four top 20 albums stateside and they had four top 10 albums in the UK, including three that went top five as well. Now, as well as playing Woodstock, they also played another legendary festival, the Isle of Wight Festival 1970, which, according to the Guinness Book of Records, had a bigger crowd than Woodstock, with estimates of over 600,000 people, which, when you think, were all crammed onto a field on a little island off the south coast of England, is pretty insane, isn't it? Now, I'm delighted to say I spoke to 10 years after drummer Rick Lee recently. He's 75, but he's still going strong. And we spoke about the early days of the band, of course, Woodstock and the Isle of Wight festivals, his autobiography, and what the band are doing nowadays with himself and fellow original member Chick Churchill still involved. So here you go. Here's my chat with the legendary rock blues drummer Rick Lee from 10 years after. I'm delighted to be joined by one of the heroes of the British rock and blues scene from the 60s and 70s and still going strong today, plugging a fantastic album, which we're going to talk about very soon indeed. Please welcome to Vintage Rock Pod, Rick Lee from 10 Years After. Hey, how you doing, Paul? I'm well. Good stuff. Keeping well in these busy, strange times. That's probably the best way of putting it, isn't it? It is indeed. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Now you're here to talk to us about um exciting new deluxe edition um, album that you're bringing out. But before that, let's have a little chat about your band. I mean, because let's be honest, 10 years after are a legendary group and everyone knows them. They've been on the go for, for, for 50 years. You know, what I mean, it's it's one of these bands which just lives long in the memory. Now, tell us about where where you all started from, because in your book, which we'll talk about soon as well, you talk about humble beginnings and the rough and tumble of it all. I mean, where did you four guys originally get together? Uh, well, I was in a band called The Mansfields in Mansfield, believe it or not. And um, <laughs> I had a drum teacher there, a guy called Dave Quickmire, who was one third of a band called The Jaybirds. And the other two thirds were Alvin Lee and Leo Lyons. 
and Dave basically schooled me up to take over his place in the drum seat. Uh, he wanted to leave and get married, and he had enough of touring with the band. Um, so I did an audition, um, uh, which I passed, thanks to Dave. He'd, he'd schooled me up in the things I needed to know for Alvin, um, and they offered me the job. I took a couple of days to think about it, but anyway, I decided that um, Alvin, being such a phenomenal guitarist, he, I mean, he could play anything. He got, he got the label Mr. Speedfingers, but Captain Speedfingers, rather. But um, he was a lot more than that. He, he could play jazz, blues, country, I mean, you name it. He he could do it. He he was phenomenal. So I I, uh, I took my chances with them. I think maybe a year after I joined them, we got an audition down in London for a, a stage show, which we passed. Chick Churchill had become friendly with Alvin, and Alvin had asked him to join the band. But for the show that we did in London, they only wanted the three piece. Okay. Uh, however, the show was supposed to run for two years. It it lasted for about six weeks, <laughs> and we were then out of a job. But we managed to secure our was a gig back in the Ivy League, uh, who had had several big hits at that time, three singers, harmony singers. And we toured with them and we rode Chick in as, uh, as roadie and then got him playing keyboards as well with us. So that's how Chick came into the band. We then did an audition at the Marquee Club in uh, uh, 1967, I think it was. Um, we passed that. We got um, the interval show, uh, sorry, the interval spot with um, on a Sunday evening with the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band, um, received standing ovations there, and we were called the Blues Yard for that one gig. Um, Chris Wright, who became our manager, came down from Manchester where he was an agent at the time and said he would like to manage us, but we had to change the name. Um, and so Leo then went through the Radio Times, which, uh, as you know, is the TV programs yeah. as well as radio. And uh, he went through with a pin, with his eyes shut, went down the list. Of, and and uh, I think there were two contenders. There was Life Without Mother or Ten Years After. Um, the uh, choices were then sent to Manchester and the staff voted for Ten Years After, which I think was a lucky choice. So uh, that's how it came about. Absolutely fantastic. I'm glad you cleared the name up as well because there's been often conflicting reports. One um, story, it was in honour of Elvis Presley, one of Lee's idols and things like that. So that's quite fascinating to hear. Now, as you said there, 1967, that was the year you brought out the first album as well. And then a couple of years later, you brought out two huge albums, didn't you? mean, Stonehenge, which really put you on the map and and Shush as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, Actually, the thing that put us on the map in America was Undead. Um, we were making Stonehenge at the time, but we weren't going to get it ready in time. It was a studio album. It's quite experimental. So we quickly recorded um, a live album in, in the pub next door to Decca Studios. They slung the, the cables over the roof. They'd recorded John Mayall a couple of times, I think, and Zoot Money as well, all the bands that were on Decca at that time. And we made that and put that out quickly in, in the States because prior to that, uh, the first album had been released in the States, but nobody really knew it existed. It more or less escaped. Um, But Bill Graham, who was the promoter at Fillmore West in San Francisco, heard it and sent a telegram to Chris Wright and said, if you're ever in America, please play my venue. Give me the details of the deal you'll require. Um, So Chris then went crazy to get the money together to get us over there. I think he got a... um, in those days, you'd get tour support from the record company. So I think London Records, which was Decker's American arm, put up some money. And I think he got some publishing advances on on Alvin's songs. Um, 
and that's why we did Undead. That came out, um, and it was actually Woodchopper's Ball uh, was this song that really broke us in America. That that grabbed everybody's attention for some reason. I, I never quite figured that out, but there you go. <laughs> um, and then, as you said, we moved in and we did uh, Stonehenge, which was pretty experimental. Had lots of different uh, silly things on it. And then Shush, which uh, which had the really the big track on that one was um, Good Morning Little Schoolgirl, which was also then banned in America, which of course made us even more popular. <laughs> Absolutely. And speaking about making you popular in America, 1969 was, of course, the legendary Woodstock. Um, and you guys played there and absolutely wowed the crowds. But was it true that you were very close to not actually being involved in that event? In Woodstock, yeah. We, um, we were on a, a tour. We'd done several tours by then of America. We used to do three months at a time, which I think is what put Strain on the band later. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, it was just a sort of regular tour. The night before, we'd been in. Uh, we'd actually played a couple of months earlier. We we played the Seattle Pop Festival, which was actually fifty thousand people, um, and that was a three day weekend. And a lot of people who played that played Woodstock. Um, that was a great festival. Fantastic weather, um, and we saw Bo Diddley and Chuck Berry, which he'd never seen before. So that was a, a fantastic uh, event for us. Um, and then we did the Newport Jazz Festival. Um, and the night before Woodstock, we were actually on tour with Nina Simone as, as the part of the, um, Newport Jazz Festival on tour. In the meantime, Frank Barcelona, our agent was, um, was pestering Chris Wright to do this uh, gig in upstate New York, which was going to be big, as he put it, It was they're expecting 50,000 people. (laughs) So Chris asked him what the money was and the money was pretty poor by comparison to what we were getting and auditoria and other festivals so chris said well what we wouldn't do that for you know we're doing fine as we are now we'll give that one a miss and frank kept ringing him and he'd say oh so and so and joining another band's joined so and so's joined um and also people were starting to come from all over the world to it and the press were picking up on it it was getting bigger by the day yeah so the final call that frank made he said look you're crazy not to do this um jefferson airplane are doing it Janis Joplin's just signed. Uh, the Who are going to do it because Frank was after the Who as well, and and he said and and finally I just heard Hendrix is signing, so you've got to do this. It'd be mad not to do it. <laughs> so Chris acquiesced luckily, and and we did it. Brilliant stuff. And what's your memories of that uh, festival itself? Thanks. I, I spoke recently to Cosmo from Credence, and he was just saying a bit like you were expecting fifty thousand, and then he had to get helicoptered in, and it was just absolute bedlam. Um. It was certainly uh, difficult to get in. Um, people had abandoned their cars on the, and blocked the roads. Uh, we couldn't get within any nearer than six miles. So we, we flew down from St. Louis, as I said, from the night before uh, into New York. We picked up by two cars. The only food we'd had to eat was on the plane on the way down um, and then drove up to Bethel, which was six miles from the mm-hmm. site of uh, Max Yasger's farm. And there was a holiday in there, we, which became known as Tranquility Base. Um, and then we we were trying to get some sleep. And we said, could we have a room? And the guy said, yeah, go go pick any room you like. I thought, oh, great. Anyway, every room, of course, had a band in it already. And I think we shared with um, Janis Joplin and Big Brother. And I was just about to get my head down on my rucksack on the floor of, the, uh, of that room when D. Anthony, who was our American manager, 
came bustling in and said, come on, we've got to go. We've got to be at the site. And we said, what are you on about? We're, on, we're not playing till tonight. He said, no, no, they want you on this afternoon. You've got to get there. So, okay. So we went to get in the cars. He said, no, you can't go by car. Uh, we've got to go by helicopter. So we went up to the helipad and there was a chopper standing there. And uh, I, was, I was about to get in and I was elbowed out of the way by a, a burly sort of bloke with a glasses and a, and a ponytail, uh, an older man. Um, and uh, it turned out to be Albert Grossman, manager of uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. And with him were um, uh, Stills, Young and Crosby. Uh, Graham Nash came later. I, I put in my book that Graham was there, but I found out from his book that he actually came over later. Um, anyway, we got in the next chopper that came, and there was a medic on board, and he said, whatever you do, don't eat anything that's not cooked and don't drink anything that's not in a sealed can or because um, we've got a potential uh, outbreak of hepatitis and we don't want it to become an epidemic. We're trying to control it. So from epidemic to pandemic, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's the title of my next book. <laughs> um, so um, anyway, we flew in. I mean, we gobsmacked by the size of the crowd, you know, whatever it was, 300,000. I don't know. People say three, four, five. It's anybody's guess. I don't know anybody counted. Um, and I think that uh, Michael Lang and Artie Kornfeld were very smart and that they declared it a free festival after the kids started breaking down the fences because Woodstock to me is, is, is and always will be what it said on the tin, which is a festival of peace, love and music. Um, if you contrast that with the 1970 with the Isle of Wight festival the year later, um, the kids wanted that to be a free festival, started breaking down the fences, but the promoters set dogs on them and beat them with nightsticks, you know, truncheons. And, um, it, yeah, it was a, not not a pleasant uh, flavour to that festival at all. Luckily, we'd left before all that happened. But, um, yeah, so the, the two are um, an absolute contrast to each other. I think that's why Woodstock will always stand as the festival if you like of the 60s lots of people tried to copy it but it never they never could it was a one-off event it, you know it happened um it, it organically it happened organically that was the word i was looking for and we we arrived of course there was uh, uh, I, I sat and watched joe cocker joe cocker set in the brilliant sunshine um and then we were due to go on next but country joe and the fish went on they said they'd never follow us they played at Fillmore East with us <laughs> as headliners and said they couldn't follow us and Joe said he would never do that again so they snuck on before us and then uh, Edgar uh, not Edgar, sorry Johnny Winter uh, jumped in as well and then the storm came of course and the whole stage was live because the covering was was really inadequate um, and it took about two hours to dry the stage out Michael Lang quite rightly wouldn't allow anybody to play and get it in case of electrocution i mean even the apparently even the cameramen were getting shocks down their um, their cables you know when they were touching the cameras um and consequently all the foods uh you know the cooking facilities were knocked out so there's no cooked food um and i never found a can that wasn't already open <laughs> so i didn't drink uh, i think later we got some uh, bottled water brought in um you know which was sealed and um, we had that definitely. We would have definitely had that on stage during the set. Um, and then we went on about. Um, well, I thought it was ten o'clock at night, but I'm told it was eight thirty. Um, and we had to start "Good Morning, Little Schoolgirl" about three, four times because the uh, guitars wouldn't stay in tune because of the atm atmospherics. It's still 
still quite damp. It was. It had been a, a. It dried off pretty well by the time we hit the stage, but it was getting damp again from the condensation from it having been a, a bright summer's day, um, and then getting cooler in the evening. Um, I take my hat off to the to the people there. I mean, they were sitting in mud. Um, they a lot of them relied totally on food parcels which had dropped from helicopters, and if somebody caught a parcel, then they would take it and. Uh, and share it with their neighbours, who they probably hardly knew. You know, yeah. they would have met in the in the few days that they'd been at, uh, at Woodstock. Uh, but it was an incredibly peaceful affair. I don't think it was any violence. I think a couple of babies were born, um, and and really, it, it it's it's a sketch of what we could be like in the world if we put our minds to it. But uh, I think, unfortunately, politicians get in the way. Absolutely. And we could talk for a long time about that, but we're probably best to leave that one where it is. Um, but in terms of, um, you mentioned a couple of false starts there in your Woodstock performance. I mean, that's going to be included on a special uh, vinyl pressing that's coming out shortly as well, isn't it? Um, I heard the other day, sadly, it won't be coming out until 2022. Oh, it's been delayed. Oh, yeah, it is. Uh, however... Space and Time, um, most successful album, which had uh, I'd Love to Change the World on it, which was a top 40 hit in 1970. It's the 50th anniversary of that uh, album in October. And in order to do a special on that, um, which they want, which Chrysalis want to do, they've had to, because of, uh, of COVID, you can imagine everybody's queuing up to get pressings of, of CDs and vinyl. Um, so the time scale just wouldn't work for them to get that ready for June, July, which was the original plan. Mm-hmm. So they're going to work on Space and Time and then do the Woodstock album uh, next year. It's really good. I've heard it. I've, I've, I've approved, approved it a few weeks back. Uh, there is something happening in June, July. and Oh, I know what it is. There was a box set they put out before, which was basically the Alvin years from uh, 67 to 84, um, and they've now put in that together in a clamshell uh, edition, uh, charging less for it. And that's coming out in June, July. So there's um, there's just been a few shuffles, as as happens in our business, I'm afraid. But that that's the rundown anyway. And and currently, as as you rightly said, we have this Deco uh, Entertainment album out, which is a, a sting in the tail, the deluxe edition. It's deluxe because it has four live tracks added to it that were taken from a subsequent album we did called Naturally Live. Uh, both those have been out in Europe and done really, really well, both on uh, CD and vinyl. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, there's a lot happening for 10 years now. Absolutely. And if anyone's unaware of A Sting in the Tail, it's a fantastic album which came out Thank you. maybe a couple of um, a couple of years ago. But in terms of the the, the the lineup and everything itself now it's it's yourself and chick isn't it from from the originals and then you've brought in colin hodgkinson who's got a fantastic um back catalogue himself he's worked with peter green and chris rear and spencer davis and then the guy that's fronting it and vo- vocals and he's an amazing guitarist as well marcus bonfanti i came across him about 10 years ago when he was doing his solo stuff he's an absolutely formidable frontman. he's got an incredible voice and he's he is just a phenomenon uh, leading you guys now isn't he oh he's, he's terrific a, a great asset to the band and and uh, a nice guy to boot. Um, just touching on uh, Sting in the Tail then with the Deluxe edition, just, just in case anyone who hasn't already heard it, and this is a great time to buy it, obviously, now with it being the Deluxe and the extra tracks on there. Um, in terms of the, the tracks on the album, I mean, for me, it starts off with an, an incredible song, and fans of my podcast know that I like a, a dark, ominous opening to a track, and Land of the Vandals is just one hell of a kick-ass track to start any album on, isn't it? 
Uh, well, that's kind of you to say so. I mean, I mean, we worked hard on all the tracks. We we wanted to make a radio friendly album. Uh, just by comparison, if you take um, "Up in Smoke," which is an acoustic type track, uh, which is the longest track on the record, is six minutes. Mm-hmm. By comparison, the the longest tracks in in previous uh, recordings uh, was. Um, I can't keep from crying sometimes, which at one stage reached 19 minutes long, so uh, <laughs> which, is, which is not awfully radio friendly these days. So um, we, we worked hard to do that, and we're we're very proud of the album. It's the first one that Chick and I have have, uh, have been able to uh, have uh, where we've had a collaborative process. Um, you know, previously Alvin had written all the stuff, and uh, we tried to write together, but he 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 didn't want to do anybody else's material. But uh, that, that was strange because the first uh, couple of albums were all covers. But anyway, there you go. Um, yeah, so we're really proud of the album. And just talk about some of the stuff that you were involved with. One of the tracks, Saran Saran, came around for for your love of an actress, didn't it? Um, yes, I'm afraid it did. Uh, I see she's got a new series coming up soon as well with uh, with Martin uh, Comston from uh, Line of Duty as well. Yes. He's He's in it. He's amazing, actually. I saw an interview with him on Jonathan Ross the other night. He's he's got a very broad Scots accent, <laughs> but in Line of Duty, you never notice it. Incredible. No, it shows what a good actor he is. Yeah. So um, yeah, I I was watching uh, Saran on on um, on TV, and um, uh, yeah, I I um, I went a bit overboard, but um, she was far too young by comparison to an old boy like me. <laughs> So uh, uh, we wrote a song about it. Marcus and I put that one together. Good stuff. And you, you mentioned that Sting in the Tale was a more radio-friendly album because 10 years after, you're famously not a singles band. You weren't out to get a radio, a AM radio play, pop radio play, that sort of stuff. But you still managed to have some really big hits. And you mentioned I'd Love to Change the World as a big hit in the US. And, and the one in the UK, which was a, t- a top 10 hit, went really big, was Love Like a Man. Although the record company or whoever it was that decided on who were going to release it managed to chop it from seven minutes to three, didn't they, when they released it? Well, we, you know, Alvin certainly wasn't happy about that. Well, I don't think any of us were, but he he certainly wasn't. Um, and I mean, it's it's pretty silly because the the guitar solo just goes pew, and that's it, just one <laughs> note. Because we it was in the studio, we jammed it in the studio, you know. Yeah. So Alvin said, well, if you're doing that, then you've got to put the full version um, on the B-side. Um, and they said, well, we can't do that. It's too long. And he said, yes, you can. You put it at 33 and a third revs, like an, like an LP in those days, yeah. um, which finally they agreed to. So you had the A-side at 45 and the B-side at 33, uh, which was um, a first, I think. Yeah, I think it was, and I think it had uh, issues for jukeboxes at the time as well, didn't it? Oh, well, that that was a problem. Yeah, we were in the south of France, and uh, Leo and Chick and I went out for a drink to uh, Albert's bar. Albert was the local taxi driver, and they had a little bar just down the road from where we were recording in Cap Ferrar, south of France. David Niven, uh, the film actor, had a house on the opposite uh, promontory. And um, went, went in and... Um, Somebody got up, and that, I think the people in the in the bar had recognised us. And somebody got up and put the uh, the single on, but they put the B side on, and so it played at uh, at forty five. So it was, tw- it was twice as fast <laughs> as it should be. But uh, the bizarre thing was they got up and danced to it. 
Um, <laughs> and when it had finished, they applauded us, you know, and we had to sort of take a bow, you know. It, it was bizarre. So uh, we finished our drinks and left. <laughs> uh, we went down the next night, and the same darn thing happened. They repeated the process. It was unbelievable. <laughs> Talk about deja vu. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. Now, uh, Rick, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. We've just brushed over some of the big stories, but you actually do have a book out, don't you, that came out at the start of the year, Headstocks to Woodstock, which goes into a lot more detail on all these big stories and many more as well. I mean, what can fans who've, who've not read that yet, what can they expect from that book? Well, uh, a lot of the stories I've outlined are in there, of course, uh, but there are many, many others. Um you know, stories of of, uh, of 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 touring with different bands. You know, Led Zeppelin and uh, Rod Stewart, The Faces. Um, uh, I met Muhammad Ali at one point, and I also met wow. Miles Davis. So there's some a lot of interesting bits and pieces. Uh, everybody that's read it as as all I wanted to do was have somebody say this is a good read. If if you whether you knew me or you don't know me. If, for instance, you know me, so if you read it and then passed it on to a mate of yours and said, you've probably not heard of Rick, but have a read. This is a good read. That's all I try to achieve. And everybody so far, touch wood, that's read it has said that. Um, So I achieved what I tried to do. Absolutely. And that's a great place to us to finish. Thank you very much, Rick. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Um, And as I said, I recommend everyone to go out and get the, the deluxe edition of A Sting in the Tail and check out Headstocks to Woodstock as well. It's a fantastic read. That's really good of you, Paul. Thank you. We really appreciate your time. The wonderful Rick Lee there. Now, 10 years after, we're a real staple of the British blues rock scene, consisting of Rick on the drums, Leo Lyons on bass, Chick Churchill on keys, and the enigmatic Alvin Lee on guitar and vocals. Alvin was named the fastest guitarist in the West, and when 10 years after ended, went on to have a solo career too. 10 years after recorded albums between 1967 and 1974, with 1971's A Space in Time going platinum in the US. Here in the UK, it was the four albums before that, though, that fared better. Stoned Henge got to number six, Shush and Cricklewood Green both reached number four, and Watt hitting the number five spot. Their most recent material with Marcus Bonfanti, who's got great soul and gravitas to his voice, and Colin Hodgkinson, who's worked with some incredible artists over the years as well, is worth checking out. Start with the deluxe version of A Sting in the Tail that we talked about in the interview. Now, it's at this stage of proceedings in the podcast that I give you my favourite songs from the band. Remember, this is my personal choice, not a critic selection. It's just the songs that I like the most. So if you're not overly familiar with the band, these are definitely a good place to start. Here's my top five 10 years after songs according to Vintage Rock Pod. At five is the opening track on the Watt album from 1971. It's a rocky, upbeat number with a soaring Alvin Lee solo that is his trademark. At number five is I'm Coming On. Number four is the track that catapulted them to stardom around the world. It's an iconic performance at the most iconic of festivals. They showcase to everyone just what the band were all about. And number four is the Woodstock version of I'm Going Home. My number three is the group's biggest hit in the UK, hitting number 10 in 1970 from the Cricklewood Green album. The single version chopped the solo out completely, much to the band's annoyance, so the B-side was the full version to be played at the slower 33.5 RPMs. The first such release of its kind. Number three, for me, is Love Like a Man. And number two is a personal favourite of mine. It's taken from the album Shush. It opens with an ominous bass line before kicking in with the pounding driving drums. It's upbeat with quick lyrics from Alvin. And number two, for me, is Stoned Woman. 
And at number one is their big hit in the States, featuring an acoustic guitar with nice tempo changes. It feels less blues rock than previous efforts, but it still hits hard. The lyrics still as poignant today as they were then. From the album A Space in Time, the number one 10 years after song, according to Vintage Rock Pot, has to be I'd Love to Change the World. And honourable mentions to Working on the Road, Hear Me Calling and The Dark, Sad Scene 2. But there you go, that's my favourite five 10 years after songs. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this list. Where do you agree? Where do you disagree? Drop me an email, vintagerockpod at gmail.com or message me on the socials. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube and give us a like or a follow on there as well. A quick shout out to everyone who got in touch about last week's top five for Credence Clearwater Revival. Um, Martin Healy said, I don't disagree with your song choices, but I'd probably change the order. Fair dues. Uh, whereas a lot of shouts for Lodi and Born on the Bayou from people like Nick Holdsworth, Brad Wiseman and Davey Wheel. Paul Tolk simply messaged to say he just loves all their songs, which is fair play. And a shout out for some lesser vaunted songs as well from Rocky Mullins on Facebook, who said Graveyard Train and Sinister Purpose are his two favourite songs. Thanks, as always, to everyone for interacting. As I said, I'd love to hear from you, so please check out Vintage Rock Pod on all the social platforms, or you can visit me at vintagerockpod.com. And while you're there, you can join the ever-growing list of VRP VIPs as well, who sign up to become uh, a Vintage Rock Pod VIP. They basically get a once weekly newsletter to make sure you don't miss out on any of the latest news and scoops from the world of Vintage Rock Pod. You get to find out who the guests are that's coming on first. You can get the chance to put your questions to these guests as well and the chance to win some goodies too. And speaking about winning goodies, don't forget you can win a pair of tickets plus camping to the Stone Dead Festival 2021. Just get to the website vintagerockpod.com. Click on the link at the top where it says win Stone Dead tickets and answer the dead dead simple question it really really is too easy and you'll be in the draw to win those fantastic tickets and don't forget vintage rock pod side two it's going to be out every friday a magazine style show with various different guests on there it's full of classic rock content you've got quizzes you've got news all that sort of stuff it's a companion piece to this regular interview show so don't miss that too until the next episode then remember if you come across anyone who isn't a fan of rock just tell them my music is better than yours Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. 
That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 